Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Rod Milam. You know, sometimes I would read one of these and just kind of stare at my screen for a while and um, think maybe I was losing my mind. So people are looking at documents thinking, where was I when these happened? It was definitely surreal. Newly released records and uncovered documents reveal that for 75 years, the United States government downplayed and ignored the risks of radioactive waste in the St. Louis area. The Missouri Independent, Muckrock, and the Associated Press spent months combing through thousands of pages of records that show radioactive waste was known to pose a threat to people living near Coldwater Creek in North St. Louis County as early as 1949. However, federal officials repeatedly wrote potential risk off as slight, minimal, or even low level. The risk of waste at Lambert Airport and in Hazelwood, Weldon Spring, and Bridgeton was also downplayed. Joining me now to discuss this is Allison Kite. She's a reporter for the Missouri Independent and is the author of the large investigation on this subject. Allison, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So radioactive contamination in St. Louis, it's been really reported on extensively by yourself and other journalists for many, many years. And this joint investigation came to a different conclusion. What did you find out in this investigation? Sure. So I think the um, the big takeaway from this investigation was just how early and how often uh, the federal government was aware that the contamination was spreading into Coldwater Creek, um, posed a risk to residents of the St. Louis area, and how many opportunities um, they had to to intervene much earlier um, and and save you know a lot of people from from getting exposed to this and potentially getting sick. So let's let's go back about 70 plus years to uh, World War II, and this is pretty much when the story started. Um, the government was trying to produce a nuclear bomb for the Manhattan Project. What was St. Louis's part in this particular effort? Sure. Uh, St. Louis played a, a pivotal role in the development of the first atomic bomb. Um, Mallinckrodt Chemical Works refined uranium for the Manhattan Project in downtown. Um, the uranium from Mallinckrodt was used in the first sustained nuclear chain reaction in Chicago, um, and that was a key breakthrough in the development of the bomb. Um, and so, you know, I think while um, newly linked with the production of the bomb, um, it wouldn't have happened if, if not for those efforts uh, in St. Louis. Okay, so we missed a little bit of what you said, but I think what it boiled down to was that um, a lot of the, the heavy lifting and the first major chain reaction um, uh, of the uranium uh, for the Manhattan Project was actually completed here in St. Louis. Is that correct? Did I understand uh, some of the background? 
Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, sorry about that. I think no, that, my that wasn't internet you. cut out for a second. <laughs> Don't worry about that. <laughs> so when the project uh, concluded, um, the remains of the toxic materials that that started off that that whole portion of the project that was uh, started by Malincrat here in St. Louis, um, all this the toxic material that was left over was moved around a lot of different times in the St. Louis area. Can you tell us about the journey of some of that waste? Where were they moved? Sure. So um, immediately after the war, a lot of that material was stored at the St. Louis airport. Um, and that's where it was, you know, first posed a threat to uh, to Coldwater Creek from um, steel drums that were deteriorating that contained uh, radioactive residue placed right near the creek. Um, eventually, the federal government sold the material um, to a private company. The idea was that that private company could um, refine the waste further to extract valuable metals like nickel, cobalt, copper, um, and then the company would dispose of the waste. So from the airport, um, some of the waste remained at the airport, but a, a good chunk of it was moved to Hazelwood um, to a site on Laddie Avenue that also backs up to Coldwater Creek and was a another means through which the creek became contaminated. Um, it was there for a number of years. Um, a company called the Cotter Corporation, um, who was not the original buyer of the waste, it changed hands a couple times, but um, dried a good deal of the waste and shipped it to its site in Colorado. Um, and then the leftover waste that um, was not valuable um, to the Cotter Corporation was taken in truckloads to the Westlake Landfill and dumped there in 1973. That's how the landfill got contaminated. Um, Laddie Avenue remained contaminated after the Cutter Corporation's work was done uh, for a number of years. And um, so that's kind of how, how the waste got spread to all these different sites. Now, why did it end up getting spread across so many different sites and across the whole region? So I think the... Um, the, it, what it boils down to is um, the federal government was, you know, trying to dispose of this waste um, by, you know, kind of shifting it off to a private company. Um, the idea, we ha had a document where the Atomic Energy Commission was discussing the potential sale and they said something along the lines of, you know, this will allow us to get rid of these 100,000 tons of waste at the airport without spending any money. Um, and which is, uh, you know, kind of wild to reflect back on now that we are decades into these cleanup efforts and millions upon millions of dollars, um, are going to be necessary to, uh, to get all of these sites remediated. And how early did they know that there was a potential problem, um, with the waste so, that was stored? Yeah. Um, so the, the earliest that we saw was 1949. Um, it was an internal me memo um, within the Mallinckrodt company where they were talking about uh, these deteriorating steel drums um, sitting at the airport uh, right next to the banks of, of Coldwater Creek. And um, they were kind of discussing this trade-off between do we, um, you know, pose a risk to workers and have them repackage this material? And they decided, no, that would be be too risky and... Um, you know, a, a far worse consequence than the potential of contaminating the stream. Um, it's not quite clear. Obviously, that memo eventually landed in the hands of the federal government because um, 
it was revealed through a Freedom of Information Act request. It's not clear exactly when the federal government got its hands on that, um, but then there was also a draft um, survey that the Department of Energy had in the um, late 70s that showed um, dangerous levels of, of these contaminants making their way into Coldwater Creek um, from the airport site. So, um, you know, somewhere in between 1949 and the and the 70s, the federal government came, became aware, but Mallinckrodt had this memo um, and knew as early as, as 1949. And since we're talking about documents, I think it's a very good time to bring in our uh, other guests that we have here in studio. I'd like to welcome uh, the co-founder of the group, Just Moms STL, uh, that is the activist Don Ch- Don Chapman. Don, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Um, I'd like to talk your, about your role in this particular investigation that was just released. Um, you work closely with Kay Dre, who is a longtime environmental activist uh, here in the state of Missouri, and she gave you binders full of documents about radioactive sites all around St. Louis County and asked if you wanted to read them. Now, do you know where these documents came from? So um, we were told by her that they came from a FOIA request. Um, You know, she uh, does her own FOIA requests sometimes and other people do them. And Kay has always been for decades um, just a living, breathing library of documents and information on these sites. So um, but what was particular about the binders is when um, when they were compiling this in chronological order, um, there were some some documents in there that they hadn't seen before that, you know, she hadn't seen that some of the people that are working with her that have been, you know, closely. And um, we knew all along from the 10 years that I've been doing this, that there were holes in the story. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we and it was very clear from just glancing at the binders and flipping through a few pages there was a lot of stuff that I had never seen before, and I thought, wow, we have something here. So you were saying there were an awful lot of documents that were there, maybe too much for you to deal with on your own. What did you decide to do with them once you you started getting just volumes and volumes and volumes of information? So um, my, my other co-founder, Karen Nickel, and I, we actually read them. We... Um, discussed a plan that um, she would read one binder and she would pass it to me and I would read it and we wouldn't discuss it until I had finished. And then we would get together, go over that binder, highlight it, talk about what was in it, and then move on to the next. So we had a process that we had and we went through and read all 15,000 pages and just sat back and were stunned and had a good cry. So what compelled you to, because you eventually passed on these documents, um, to Allison and her team, uh, what compelled you to do that? Well, you know, just as Allison pointed out in their investigation showed, there was just a timeline that started to appear as we were reading them of when the federal government knew and when they didn't and um, how this waste changed hands. And really the thought process behind the Department of Energy, which to us did not appear to be about protecting people, but so much as getting this waste off of their hands and not being the sole entity responsible for it because they knew it was her, you know, harmful and could be hurting people. So, um, and we don't have the ability to do what, what Allison and her team did, which is really investigate it and come in with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, because I will tell you, you know, I feel like my family has been harmed by this. That does to some extent make me bias. Mm-hmm. We needed people that had not read about this before and really understood it to take a fresh look. And that's just what they did. And how and why did you choose Allison and her team in order to do this? 
So um, we had been following the Missouri Independent and Allison for some time, um, you know, watching, you know, the stories they did. And we actually had a journalism professor, um, you know, that we were speaking with. And she, she sh- suggested Muckrock and the Missouri Independent. So we uh, reached out and, um, you know, it didn't take us long to start feeling comfortable because I right away what they wanted to do made sense and what was what it's what needed to happen we we knew that they had the ability to do what they just did and um i remember the day we handed off the thumb drive you know i just felt like i was handing over my newborn baby Mm -hmm. and allison what was it like for you on your end to be you know handed this certain amount of information uh, that had just been released about this very large and long-going uh, radioactive subject and what's been in the hiding, the hiding and the cover-up behind it. Yeah, I, I think whenever somebody, you know, puts their faith in you to, to tell a story that's really important to them, um, that's a high honor. So, you know, I, I was obviously um, very appreciative that Don and Karen trusted us to to go through these documents and tell this story. Um, and then, you know, as I started to uh, to go through and annotate them, I, you know, would just come across a document and and read it, like the 1949 memo where the um, Mallinckrodt knew that these deteriorating steel drums could um, result in nuclear waste contaminating Coldwater Creek. And, you know, sometimes I would read one of these and just kind of stare at my screen for a while. And... Um, think maybe I was losing my mind um, <laughs> that I wasn't really reading this um, and um, so it was it was definitely surreal um, to, to go through these thousands of pages covering you know the entire history of, of these sites. We're going to take a quick break and we'll get back to more about reading these actual uh, documents in just a bit. You're listening to St. Louis on the Air here on St. Louis Public Radio. And now back to our conversation about local radioactive waste contamination from the World War II atomic era with Allison Kite, who is a reporter with the Missouri Independent, and Don Chapman, who is co-founder of the group Just Moms STL. Thank you very much, both of you, for staying with us and to the audience as well. Now, we talked about Malacrod Chemical Works' role that happened in this entire process. The company knew about potential runoff into a nearby creek as early as 1949, if I'm not mistaken. But it wasn't until 1976 that a survey commissioned by the federal government confirmed dangerous levels of contamination in Coldwater Creek itself. Now, Allison, what else did this survey determine? So I think the big takeaway from the survey is that you know, this waste that was sitting at the airport was not contained. Um, you know, the the levels obviously um, are going to rise over time if you've got wastewater or, or stormwater runoff carrying this waste into the creek. Um, so I think the the big takeaway was um, that that if, if something wasn't done, um, this waste was going to continue to get into the creek, and it did. And was there something about the level of the contamination and what did some of the folks um, who knew more about the the levels of the contamination, uh, what did they have to say about that as well? 
So um, we didn't get detailed answers on that from the Department of Energy. Um, we talked to, you know, some independent experts who said these these levels were not safe um, for for humans to um, be exposed to. Um, there, the survey didn't include um, discussion of the levels um, beyond, you know, um, summarizing them um, on the part of the federal government, but. Um, we did run these by some folks who said, yeah, this this should have been a red flag. And was there anything that was done as a result of the report back in back then in seventy six? Uh, it doesn't it doesn't seem so. the um the airport remained contaminated for for years to come after that. Um, in the the nineteen eighty s, there was um kind of an acute um, uh, situation of of a, a bunch of severe runoff all at all at once. Um, from the site. So, um, you know, this, this stuff was allowed to continue to threaten the, uh, the creek for years. And Dawn, this entire issue is really personal from you. And just even talking about it, I can see it on your face. Um, was it difficult waiting for this entire investigation to, to wrap up? It was so difficult waiting for this to come out. And I think, um, it's like, it's, it's like you're waiting for the truth and you know it's going to come out, but you know it's going to hurt people. I, I think the, the most important thing to look at right now and to understand is that there are people alive who know where they were back then with the timestamps on these reports. So they can look at these reports that Allison's talking about and say, oh, my God, I was playing across the street on that ball field right across from the airport, like 20 feet from the airport's waist. I thought that was a junkyard. That wasn't a junkyard. That was nuclear waste. I mean, you have people doing that. You've got people living in a park half a mile down from where it was leaking going, oh, my gosh. I remember it being that summer and we were in that park and we were doing this and we had family over. I mean, so people are looking at documents thinking, where was I when these happened? And I mean, they know that the opportunity to protect them wasn't there. And frankly, they're sick. It didn't have to be this way. Mm -hmm. And it's something that's clearly been going on for a long time. And I think some of the listeners, um, not just you, Dawn, um, want to get in on this conversation. And right now we have a call from Jerry. Jerry is calling from O'Fallon, Missouri right now. Jerry, you're on St. Louis on the Air. Thank you. Good afternoon. I, I have a question. Uh, my street in Ferguson ended at a small park that bordered on Mayleen Creek which has the same source at Lambert Field. And I know Coldwater has been well-known publicly for at least 20 years or so. I don't know if any of that, if you had any evidence of contamination. Uh, I had uh, two cancers that were linked to either radioactive or heavy metal uh, toxins. And on the short street I grew up on, uh, there were three guys about my age that all died between like tw uh, 30 and 45 of like, uh, I think two were brain cancer, and the third was another kind of obscure uh, type of cancer. So I wondered if that's, as I say, it's the same source at Lambert, and I think it goes through North County, ultimately uh, through, through Spanish Lake, and I think into the Mississippi, but it's the same source. You know, um, well, first of all, I'm just so sorry. I mean, I, I can't imagine what it, how you feel today. Um, but I will tell you that, you know, we're talking about documents that talk about water runoff 
But water runs off of sites from different directions. Maylene Creek is something we've been concerned about and, and have wanted. And I think now we have reason to go out and test. But I think it's very important you understand that some of these documents detail um, windblown. And you certainly, where you're describing where you lived, would have been downwind of the airport. You know, we do have evidence in these documents of the wind blowing this onto roofs at these sites and, and the Army Corps having to come out because there was heavy radioactive waste in the tar of the roofing shingles that they then had to take off. So um, please, please get in touch with me. I'd love to speak with you more. I will get your information from the, from the uh, website. Thank you. Jerry, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I'd like to talk about the amount of time it's taking to clean things up at Westlake Landfill. It seems like it's been very slow. We're talking about something that was known by the federal government from back as far back as 1949. Um, and the, the cleanup of these sites at Weldon Springs and near the airport in Coldwater Creek seems like it's really slow. What's it going to take? Um, and I guess I'll ask this question both to Dawn and to Allison. What do you think it'll take for this cleanup um, to actually get done expeditiously now that uh, some more spotlight has been put on this? I think this is what it takes. I think we have evidence in these documents that the federal government knew it was illegally dumped before they have said. And I think that, um, you know, again, they did not watch this person that purchased the waste had to have an, a, a license. You know, there was a lot of funny business that the government did overseeing their license when they had this waste at Laddie Avenue that led to it being illegally dumped at Westlake. So as far as I'm concerned, they need to pay for the whole cleanup at Westlake. De deal done. And they they really need to get out there and do it. They know what they need to do. Um, we're hoping that this is what it what it what it takes and what happens. Allison, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think um, I think that this story kind of um, has over the years ebbed and flowed where, you know, uh, for example, a few years ago when you had the emergence of the fire at the Bridgeton landfill, there was a lot of coverage for a while and then it'll periodically quiet down. Um, I'm hoping that we've been able to, to contribute to some sense of urgency about um, getting these sites cleaned up. I certainly think that the attention from uh, state and federal lawmakers who, along with uh, Don last week, called on the Department of Energy to fund this cleanup and get it done, at least um, it, the engineering done to prepare for the cleanup within the next five years. So I'm hopeful that that adds um, some some sense of urgency here. And with just about 30 seconds left, um, Allison, you wrote another story that published yesterday. The headline for that story was Missouri wanted feds in 2021 or warned in 2021 that radioactive contamination of groundwater was not improving. What is the takeaway from that story that you wrote? Sure, I think the takeaway from that story is that the Weldon Spring containment cell um, is something that we still have to keep an eye on. I think it's easy to write that site off um, as not a problem anymore because it looks like it's been, uh, and it has, been contained, but the uh, the groundwater has just been monitored. And so that's something that we have to keep an eye on. And very quickly, again, um, as a reporter, and this might be beyond your purview, but with climate change, and we're one year away, I think this week, if not next week, from the 11 inches of rain in 24 hours that fell um, in the St. Louis area. And we also recently just had another huge rain event. Is there any sense of urgency, again, with climate change that you were seeing um, or that you found through your investigation on uh, the officials 
to try to get some of this solved because it's projected that things are going to get worse and worse, especially um, at the landfill. That's a great question. I have not seen a ton of evidence that um, uh, federal officials are looking at that. That doesn't mean that they're not. Mm -hmm. I know that they've um, gotten concerns from um, activists about, do you have a plan for if a tornado blows through? Do you have a plan for um, flood runoff? So right. um, I'm hoping that, that that's something that they've looked at. That was Allison Kite. She's a reporter with the Missouri Independent, and we've been speaking as well with Dawn Chapman. She's the co-founder of the activist group Just Moms STL. Thank you very much, both of you, for being with us here today. Today's segment was produced by Aula Kuziz. With audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.